Go. Streaming from South Africa to the world. To the world. This is the Stonks Go Moon podcast. What just happened? We break it down so you don't have to. Welcome everyone to the Stonks Go Moon podcast. My guest today, friend of the show, returning guest, Alfonso Piccadillo, is author of the Macro Compass. Alfonso, welcome to the pod. Hey, Rocco, how are you doing, man? Nice to talk to you again. I'm excellent. It's so good to have you back digitally on all the platforms. We really missed you. Last time I spoke to you, we were going through the great crypto experiment, and I guess we're still going through it. We have a president buying the Bitcoin dip using his cell phone and using funds, Lord knows where it's coming from. Currently down 10 million, probably doing better than the average retail trader, I would say. (laughs) What is happening in El Salvador at the moment? Well, you know, uh, it's a bit strange to describe, but I think the main indication is to look at the El Salvador dollar bond outstanding out there. Mm-hmm. You have a look at these guys and they're, of course, trading down because ultimately what's happening in there is that, um, well, let's, you ask me, how is El Salvador actually managing to buy Bitcoin? Yes. Well, any single government can have the, has the ability to print money whenever they want. And, you know, if, if basically Erdogan has been doing the same in Turkey, right? I mean, yes. Turkish lira is going down. He needs to repay foreign debt, or if he wants to buy foreign assets, he still needs to buy them using the lira. So you know, you just create it, create credit or new lira out of thin air, and you buy assets slash you repay debt in in foreign currencies. So El Salvador probably is using the same approach, which obviously long term is clearly not sustainable. It's a funny thing because if you delve deeper, you'll find that it's not as straightforward as they make it out because there's companies like Algorand involved, there's company institutions settling these transactions in the US. And one of the things that came out this week was, oh, Brazil adopted Bitcoin. And that was the first. And then it was like this big hurrah, whatever. And then there's an article next day. Oh, the mayor of Rio de Janeiro plans to invest 1% of the city's treasury in crypto. And then I'm like, we have to be careful here because there's certain narratives that are driving this thing and it's 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 becoming increasingly like risky and i would say not for the maybe for the general public out there because you read these headlines you're saying oh but all these governments are going this way i should be going this way as well maybe they don't know the full risks involved i sympathize actually with rio de janeiro mayor putting, I think it was 1% of their reserves in Bitcoin. Yes. I advocated a few times that if you can manage your downside risks and your volatility, Bitcoin as any other digital asset, it's an asset class. It's an asset class, but you should allocate. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to speak to you today, because I saw your, your, your Substack called the end game. And that's what we're going to unpack today because how did we get here? How did we get to this point? And I think you need to take us all the way back to the gold standard. Yes, basically, yes. <laughs> so um, in 1971, we basically decided to unpeg credit creation from a hard asset, um, hard and you know, potentially valuable asset, which was gold. Yes. And once we did that, um, you know, in the 80s already, a few years later, we started creating credit like there is no tomorrow, which means bank landed because they could expand their credit book, their loan book, without having it backed by about nothing. Mm-hmm. And governments, of course, took the chance to do the same because you could just you know, create new credit or def- print new deficits if you're the government 
without having to worry that much uh, about how your currency was doing in its peg against the gold. Now, why did we do that, Rocco? Is because exactly in the 80s, because the drivers of long-term growth, so demographics and productivity, both peaked in terms of impulse of growth mm-hmm. in the late 80s. And obviously, there is no politicians or no policymaker in the world that likes to grow less than its predecessor. It's not that just doesn't work. Very po- it's not politically very popular. Is it? <laughs> exactly. It doesn't get you re-elected. So what we did is we started expanding credit to overlay cyclical growth on the poor structural trend or the, you know, the slowing down structural trends. Yes. And basically what you're doing is you're borrowing purchasing power from the future. Mm-hmm. And you are just you know, overlay, overlaying it today on what's your structural growth. And you know, that model works very well. The problem is that most of this newly created debt or credit, which is the other side of the coin, was actually for unproductive purposes. So it's for okay. today's consumption. It boosts today uh, product, um, sorry, uh, uh, GDP, let's say, and consumption. But long term, it's actually a drug on growth. So okay. you basically kick the can down the road and you do this exercise year after year, decade after decade. And you couple it with um, falling real interest rates. So interest rates adjusted for inflation. That's the other side of the coin, which is very important because it makes borrowing cheaper. And every subsequent president that wants to get reelected, they just keep on doing the same policy. Well, unless they find a magic formula to boost structural growth, what they're going to do is obviously they're going to try and use the new fully elastic credit creation system that we have today since 1971, still working, which basically allows you to expand credit at your will. And okay. as, as long as leverage is cheaper via cheaper via lower real interest rates, it feels like the house that cost a hundred thousand dollars twenty years ago and it's now worth two hundred thousand dollars. If you look at why that is the case, it's seventy percent due to the fact that real interest rates, so the borrowing costs infl- adjusted for inflation on your mortgage, have actually dropped, which makes the net present value today of your asset much more expensive than it was 20 years ago. And you call that an illusion, right? It's, I forgot the term now, it's the wealth illusion. Correct. I call that the wealth illusion effect because it basically allows people to access credit, which is cheaper and cheaper. And by accessing this credit and you know buying real assets with it, for example, a house, yes. of course, they, they would feel it's accessible. And if, if the credit becomes cheaper for the next guy in five years from now, yes. then the net present value of the asset the guy has bought five years ago is obviously going up as the new leverage is cheaper and cheaper. And there is okay. new and new credit created every time. So obviously, this game ends or has serious problem when the borrowing costs can't become that cheap anymore. And that's when real interest rates stop falling. Is that where we more or less are now? Or or not there, but nearing that point? Well, I think Japan leads uh, this monetary experiment and this fiscal experiment as well, uh, uh, very well. If you look at real interest rates in Japan, they lead European and US real interest rates by 15 years and eight years approximately. So they've started before, about maybe you know, 15, 20 years before than uh, before Europe or the US, but they're going there. And real interest rates today in Japan cannot fall anymore, yeah. simply because Rocco, you know, nominal interest rates are capped at, uh, sorry, floored at zero in Japan, approximately at zero, and inflation expectations just don't move anymore. Um, now, Europe is already getting there. Um, 
you know, nominal interest rates in Europe went all the way down to minus 0.7% in 10-year mm-hmm. German government bonds. Mm-hmm. There is not much, you know, room to go there. If you go lower than that in nominal terms, people might just prefer holding cash, storing it in a vault, That's paying uh, storage and insurance costs. And then if you can't drop nominal interest rates anymore, you are all counting on inflation expectation to break on the upside or otherwise real interest rates can't drop anymore. Okay, so basically in your substack, you said there's two options there. There's two ways that they can go. What are the, according to you, what are the two options? What are the two ways that you can go? Well, there is the way nobody likes, which is to deleverage. So you basically walk back on the last 20 to 30 years, maybe 40 years, and you say, sorry, guys, but all this cheap leverage you've got and all this cheap credit that we have created, we'd like, especially the private sector, to take quite a hit. And so we will deleverage. And we can do this forcefully by basically either raising interest rates, like Japan did, for example, uh, in the late 80s, which then okay. started the burst of the Japanese real estate bubble, if you remember. Yes, yes, yes. And then, and, and then, and then you know, you can do that. But what it, what it means is that you will wipe out basically the wealth illusion that a couple of generations are living on, which is, you know, all this real estate, mark-to-market, to the roof, all yes. these 401ks, to the roof. All of that, you need to basically apply a haircut of maybe 40 to 50% at least, Wow. And then you, and th- yeah, and, and that's huge, that's obviously. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, reason- you're talking about generational wealth being wiped out. And I, I, I mean, I was about to ask you, what is the probability of that happening? Because I can't see a, polit- a politician in, uh, at least in the Western countries, that's going to put his hand up and say, listen, I'm going to do that. No, that, that of course doesn't happen. I mean, even no. China today, Rocco, has yes. tried to deleverage the, the property sector by allowing Evergrande and a couple more companies yeah, to actually take a hit. Yeah. But you, has, you have seen already the PBOC just a few months later coming out, cutting rates, telling they're going to stimulate the economy. I mean, this is China. If yes. there is one country that could sort of try to engineer that, it's China, and they're still refusing to do Autonomous so. control, I mean, it's basically... But yeah, I'm, I'm with you. If there's one, and they couldn't. So, okay, so let's put that probability on ISO. That's a low probability. What's the other one? Well, the high probability is kick the can down the road, which is what we've been doing for the last 40 years. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that with every kick, now you can literally move the can very little forward. Because as you said before, we are approaching the levels where real interest rates can't drop anymore. And the amount of debt, especially in the private sector, also in the public sector, is already at like 400% of GDP in most developed economies. So yes. you might even want to argue whether the private sector wants to borrow and to leverage up more. So what happens then is that policymakers are going to get creative and they've already started with the CBDC, Central Bank Digital yes. Currency, yes. which basically uh, amongst its many functions also has the one to be able to apply lower and lower nominal interest rates. So more negative interest rates on bank deposits in a targeted way, because as soon as you basically eliminate cash effectively from the system mm-hmm. and you have a centralized digital system where the policymaker can choose which tier of negative interest rates to apply to whom, effectively can try to force real interest rates even more negative than they are today. But this sort of creativity or these experiments basically tell you that you know, we are approaching points where it's marginally more, more difficult to play this game. And then there is the third way. So there is the kick the can down the road, which is, you know, a slow uh, move towards the Japan moment where you can't do this game anymore and you sort of stagnate. But the real question is, are we going to have a convex moment, basically, where it all 
sort of, if not explodes, at least it, it, it trembles big times. And well, outside shock events, which then you can't blame policymakers for, are, in my opinion, the highest likelihood uh, events that could cause a macro endgame. We have tried okay. with the pandemic. That was, that was the perfect excuse, right? You, you yes. have a pandemic. It, you, you can't do much about that. But what have, what have we done? In that moment, Rocco, is exactly we have turbocharged this model. Yes. And the US has printed 25% fiscal deficits, basically, in percentage of GDP. Triple down on that. I I mean, we're we're talking like 5 trillion of fiscal deficits being printed by the US government in two years. That's what's happened. So we have turbocharged the same exact reaction. Do you really think a three dot rate increase is going to do anything? Uh, Well, you know, I, I think the system can handle less and less rate increases. Yes. And you are seeing that also, I mean, the bond market, which is generally very smart, or has okay. been very smart about this for the last four years, okay. signals that the so-called terminal rate is basically below 2%. So if in 2018, we went to 2.5% in Fed funds rate before hell, you know, <laughs> just came to markets. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This time, because total leverage in the economy is even higher then probably the equilibrium rate that the economy can take is even lower than that. So I don't know. I mean, especially the first strikes are not a big drama. And also yes. the first attempts at quantitative tightening, as I explained on the macro compass yesterday, mm-hmm. are not a big drama. Yeah. But long term, it, it remains pretty clear to me the equilibrium levels for yields are you know, not very high. So which brings me to, I would say, the natural conclusion of your substack being, okay, cool. So as a macro investor, and taking all these things into account, what is the play or what is the plays here looking at the long term? So, uh, of course, we're talking probabilistic yes, events, probabilistic. right? So, yeah, no, not, not theoretical, completely theoretical. <laughs> I mean, no, but also, also the base case, I think your base case or anybody's best case cannot be that, you know, the world is going to end tomorrow and the macro endgame is tomorrow. But I no. think there are ways to prepare for the yes. macro endgame Uh, via basically owning a percentage of your portfolio in assets that will benefit from such a situation. And there are two main assets, in my opinion. One is basically the basket of assets that that benefits from the monetary reset that that would entail. And the other one is the one that benefits from, uh, let's say, the scarcity value, but also the the value that these hard assets bring to humans, uh, to, to basic human needs. And so to translate... The, the assets that would benefit from a monetary reset are, in my, my opinion, clearly gold, which has yes. served the purpose to peg as a hard asset credit creation basically throughout history, um, in and out. And the other one will be a small percentage allocation to Bitcoin or any digital assets uh, or a basket of digital assets. That's what I wanted to say, because I think you cannot discard or attach a 0% probability that digital assets are going to play a role in that monetary reset. I'm not saying Bitcoin will replace the dollar. I'm saying there is a non-zero percent chance that digital assets will play a small role or perhaps a role in that monetary reset. So you might want to own a small percentage of your wealth in that asset. And then there is a second basket of assets, Rocco, which is the hard assets that bring value. And then I'm talking about uh, real estate, farmland, things that humans will always need, even in a monetary reset. I love that about your Substack where you said that I'm not saying this is going to happen, but if anything has a larger than zero probability, then I need to allocate accordingly. It's kicking that bias that you have 
you know, about seeing, oh yeah, Bitcoin and um, I don't like it or whatever. It's that's a bias. So, so, so saying, okay, but my probability isn't zero, then I need to allocate accordingly. Yes, correct. So I look at every setup in markets and possibility as a risk reward, uh, yes. which means there is a risk, there is a probability, and there is a potential reward out of it. How can I skew the odds in my favor? That's basically the question I ask myself. And I think assigning a 100% probability to any event uh, or 0% is outright never a smart idea. I, th I mean, we just had an underwater volcano erupt in Tonga. I mean, that which no one saw coming, or at least I didn't see coming. So, I mean, I guess preparing for any deflationary event is a good idea. Alfonso, thank you so much for coming on today and unpacking your Substack as always. Uh, and where, where if people want to connect with you, what is the best way to do that? And where can they subscribe? Well, they can subscribe to my free newsletter. It's a global macro newsletter that provides uh, actionable investment ideas as well. It's called the Macro Compass. It's on Substack. Um, or they can follow me on LinkedIn uh, with my full name, which is Alfonso Peccatello, or on Twitter at the end of at MacroAlf. And we'll put those links in the comments. Thank you so much for joining us to our listeners. Peace, love, and prosperity. We'll catch you on the next one.